quick warning, we do talk about suicide and suicidal tendencies in this episode. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Thank you and on with the episode. Welcome, welcome, doggies, to another exciting episode of our favorite podcast. I'm Rob Basercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. I am very excited about this episode today. I must say I'm feeling a little bit of trepidation due to the subject matter of these films. It is very heavy. But before we get started, please follow us at, at Cadaver Dogs Pod at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can also email us at cadaverdogspodcast at gmail.com to let us know what kind of films you like, if you like our uh, subjects, if you think we should do some things better, and to give us any kinds of recommendations that you want us to follow. So what's up, guys? How's it going? Hey, um, things are going fine. I think I have a basement, cousin. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, okay, so my boyfriend went to the basement of our building and found a pool table and like a bar and a fish tank with fish in it and like this whole like bachelor pad setup it's not an apartment it's just our basement of the building cool I, so i'm like is someone living in our basement no i think it's just a place we're all gonna hang out from now on <laughs> that's pretty cool so um so you either have like phantom of the opera living in your basement you know like people under the stairs thing or <laughs> You just have a sick basement. Who's taking care of these fish, though? It's I think so someone's weird. living down there. Landlord? Maybe. Super? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. What kind of fish? Like goldfish? They're like really gross big fish. They're like huge. Oh, wow. So it's like the kind of big fish you'd see when you go to like a Chinese restaurant? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's like an underground gambling place and they eat the fish. Um, I love fish. So I am down. I've eaten those fish with chopsticks. It's very hard. <laughs> you guys ever do that? When I was in Taiwan, I was like at a lake, like in the middle of nowhere. And this dude like made me a fish and he had no teeth at all. It was like black. He must have chewed a lot of dip. He gave me this fish and chopsticks. I was like, how the fuck am I going to eat this thing? And it was so difficult. I, I ate the eyes though. Ew. Wait, also how did eyes? he eat it? Did he eat it? Uh, he didn't eat with me, but I would assume he definitely gummed some fish. Ew. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> well, actually, you know, my, my wife and I have been vegetarian for like three weeks now, so it feels decent. Oh, really? Yeah, I've cheated a lot. She hasn't cheated at all. So, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> three <laughs> weeks, Rob. <laughs> Way to last. Maybe we should get into it. Our first film is a strange one. I'm going to let Devin Shepard tell you guys about it. Our first film is Ty West's The Sacrament. When Patrick, a fashion photographer from New York City, gets a concerning letter from his addiction-afflicted sister, he knows just the right people to help save her. The provocative indie news outlet, Vice. 
Patrick's sister Caroline has joined a progressive new movement called Eden's Parish. She has moved out of the country into a compound that the parish has built, and she wants Patrick to come down and see her beautiful new way of life. Patrick, along with vice journalist Sam and the cameraman Jake, travel to the compound with the intent to document the trip. As Patrick goes off to spend time with his sister, Sam and Jake interview various residents about their reasonings to join the movement, each coming from a background ladled with shame or suffering. They all talk in praise of their mysterious leader, Father, and his teachings for a new way of life. Later that night, Sam is granted an interview with Father, with all of the parish in attendance. As Father speaks, Sam can't help but to agree with some of his progressive thinking against capitalism and the oppression of the government. Things may be better here after all. Oh wait, just kidding. Later that night, a group of members approach Sam and Jake asking to leave with them. They're frightened. What is actually going on here? Sam and Jake offer to find a way to get them out. After all, they are allowed to leave, right? But when the news reaches Father, he fears the media retaliation. They'll paint their movement in a bad light. The only solution is for everyone to die. Now, in a positive place before their beautiful faith is tarnished by the media. So obviously this movie is kind of just a retelling of Jonestown and Jim Jones and uh, his teachings. Um, David, you did a lot of research into Jim Jones and the cult. Uh, Could you give us like a brief background? Because I think that's going to paint a lot of our conversation today. I did a reasonable amount of research is what I would say. (laughs) (laughs) So Jim Jones ran uh, the People's Temple Church. He basically preached uh, a lot of racial in- racial integration and apocalyptic doom in the 60s and 70s. Actually, it started in the 50s when racial integration was actually still considered radical for some reason. So he had a largely African-American following. Um, and then over the decades, as he continued to preach socialism, he actually became a very influential figure what politicians would court. Uh, but he also became increasingly paranoid and eventually moved his cult to South America, to Guyana, uh, where increasing scandals started coming out. Uh, there was some tax evasion. There was a child custody question uh, because he wouldn't let people leave, including the children who were there. Ugh. So a senator, Leo Ryan, I think was his name. Uh, Leo Ryan took a few people down there to find out what was going on, and Jim Jones freaked out. He killed uh, Ryan and and the other people who came, Um, and then he had everyone in the People's Temple Church drink. It wasn't actually Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. It was a fruit punch laced with cyanide to kill them, and the people actually resisted this. It is a common myth that everyone just willingly drank it. People... Some people thought it was a drill, so they didn't think it was actually cyanide. Oh, wow. Some people did not want to drink it, uh, but he he forced them to at gunpoint. Uh, there are, like, syringe marks on some people showing that he might have injected some people with it. But it, 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 was, it was really fucked up. Yeah. And he killed 900 people. Holy crap. It is the largest amount of Americans killed in a non-natural incident outside of 9-11. I, I do have to correct you there. It's the largest number of civilian Americans killed outside of a non-natural event. Because Pearl Harbor did have a bigger death toll, but they were non-civilians. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, It's interesting that 
drink the Kool-Aid that that phrase has been like taken from the Jim Jones people's temple movement because it's yeah it's usually said to like I don't know like the sheeple like uh you're following the government or like you're you're going into like the the zeit what what am I saying zeitgeist going into, yeah yeah going into the zeitgeist um where in fact like Jim Jones's teachings was progressive and was like going against the government and they're the ones who quote drink the kool-aid drink the flavor aid like you said i think i've heard conservatives use drink the kool-aid more often um i never actually put two and two together that that came from jim jones until doing all this research uh a lot of people who there, there were survivors from the jim from jonestown massacre uh the survivors and their family members actually uh tend to find it kind of offensive I found out. I mean, yeah, because yeah. which 900 yeah. people died. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, yeah. it's not even that. A lot of the survivors, like their entire families died during this incident. You know? Yeah. There, there was a guy who left his child behind. There was another guy who witnessed his wife and child being forcibly like fed cyanide. Um, there were a lot of fanatics there. It was it was a crazy situation because it was a mix of people drinking the Kool-Aid and other people not wanting to. And there were also there were also like th- over 300 unidentified bodies to this day. And a lot of them were children that were like either born there, you know, people were in syringes spraying it into their baby's mouth. And what's so strange about this movie, The Sacrament, is that they showed a lot of this on screen. It's just that it was about a tenth of the number of people who were actually at Jonestown because Jonestown was over a thousand people. In The Sacrament, it's like 200. Yeah, it's interesting that the movie cut down the death count so much. What I, I want to ask you guys, actually, what do you think are the significant changes from the real story to the sacrament? Because there are some changes. Uh, and what do you think is the, the impact of those on the story? I definitely think that the lower number of people was probably just a budgetary constraint. Um, just shooting with a <laughs> thousand people was probably much more difficult. So they made it 200. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them are just very superficial changes, like... It's in Africa, in Ethiopia, instead of South America. Um, instead of a congressional hearing, it's the people from Vice. It actually kind of feels like all the changes in the movie just lessened the stakes of the actual event. Like the actual event was much more dramatic. The stakes were much higher. There was a lot more people involved. And, and the, the other gigantic change was the father himself, uh, Jim Jones. They, they cast a much older... And I think uh, a less charismatic individual to play the role, who's also seemed less crazy. Like when Jim Jones was talking towards the end, he was so drugged up and so paranoid, he sounded insane, and he was often slurring. There's this great documentary, uh, Terror in the Jungle, on Amazon. You have to buy it, but it's on Amazon. It's like seven bucks. And Jim Jones talking from the beginning of uh, you know his reign to the end, is it's stark, the change in his ability, because he's... F- swollen he's fatter he's sweaty and he's slurring constantly he's like raving mad towards the end yeah wow i i, I definitely want to get to the casting choice of um gene jones as as father um because i don't know if i necessarily agree with you there but um i want to go back to um what you were saying about the major changes because i think in a way yeah there there weren't a lot of changes but i think the the ones that were made were a way to modernize um, this and make it more relatable to to today's audiences. And I think the biggest change that you pointed out, Rob, was um, changing it from the senator who goes down to try 
to try to figure out what's happening there with these people um, to the media going down there and Vice in particular. I thought that was such an interesting choice because Vice is known as this um, provocative, progressive um, indie outlet that goes against mainstream media. That's like their number one thing, right? Um, which they say at the beginning of this film, um, they treat this film like it's a Vice documentary and talk about Vice in, in those words. And that's such a um, that is such an interesting choice to make. And I'm wondering if you guys do you think Vice was painted in a good light? I also think it's worth noting that like Vice is marketed as this like anti-establishment news outlet, although they are relatively establishment. They're still owned by a conglomerate. They still are like vetted on what they can actually release. They're not exactly indie in that way but they do get amazing access and i think that this movie gets that part right i thought i was watching a vice presentation i thought it was a different movie because (laughs) it's not exactly clear the date this film came out because you see some of them they say 2013 but then on amazon it says 2014 and then i went online so i was trying to figure out if it was the right movie there may be two sacrament movies (laughs) oh wow yeah yeah oh i know that's probably just me being an idiot but like you know i paid for it and then i was like oh god did i just pay three dollars for the wrong movie like dear, like dear God, it feels less powerless to say that you're just a bunch of journalists going somewhere rather than a senator. Yeah, it, it feels less heavy. So I don't know if I liked that change. I, mm. it was cool, but I, I like David. I didn't know much about Jonestown watching this film, and I think that my, uh, my enjoyment of it, my experience would have been much much different had I known more about Jonestown going in. Yeah, I agree that I think the biggest change is with the media folks. Um, I mean, part of me wonders if the only reason they made that change was so that they could do it found footage style. Like, if it's a senator, then it's harder to justify making it found footage. And I feel like they had to dance around a lot of the time in order to force it to be a found footage film. But regardless, it does have an impact for sure, because I think the movie talks a lot more about the media and how the media treats this sort of event uh, than it would have otherwise, whether that's intentional or not. Definitely. And I mean, but I also think it's a commentary on the media too. I mean, Mm -hmm. the way that, like you were saying, the way that they present these specific events, but also the way that the media reports in general, we do find these like kind of cultish, that's a hard comparison to use the word cultist to describe uh, media influence, but media mm. influences it's definitely an influence just much just as much as any other religious leader or any other cult leader i think you know there is a doctrine there that people tend to follow so i see that commentary on like choosing a media outlet and journalists to to be the main subjects of this story i i will say it's odd that i think his name is sam this was so partial in his reasoning i mean he was really supposed to like exercise uh journalistic neutrality and he was completely unable to yeah and you could kind of blame him a lot more than you could have the actual senator but it it seemed like the senator was a lot more like level-headed about the whole operation reality than anyone was uh how do you mean that sam exercised bias he was like oh we're gonna take this girl out of here and blah 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 and it's like dude like that's not how you handle this like you guys don't <laughs> have the power to do that you're journalists what you're supposed to do is go tell someone with real authority to come there with force and the means to get everyone out 
Mm, yeah. You know, and he just completely couldn't do it. And it was like the camera guy, uh, Jake, who was by far the smartest character out of the three of them. He's the only one who was like <laughs> had a level head and was doing things properly. Felt like, you know, Patrick was just pretty much MIA. It was kind of like uh, the hangover where they're like looking for him the whole movie. I mean, I kind of side a bit with Sam on that one as well, though. I mean, yeah, he doesn't have the power to do it, but I understand why he wants to. Like, he, they're, they're not going to be able to come back. The idea of coming back, like, we see in the movie that that does not work. Even getting out of there immediately isn't working. I mean, you, I would want to save the kid if I could, if, or if I thought I could. Yeah, I think his demon... I think Sam's characterization of um, what some would see as a a journalistic weakness, I guess, is actually, I think it helps the film a lot. Um, Looking at all these people that they interview, the members of the parish, Mm -hmm. they all seemingly are quite normal except for some horrible event that happened in their life or not necessarily for some, not even necessarily horrible, but some way of coming up that seems like a um coming up with some sort of like setback i guess yeah i get a lot a lot of people came from like a lower income means they're like the two of the characters said they came from the hood and they come from a place of violence so yeah. for them to be in eden was, was very good for them in the movie yeah everyone's a little bit susceptible to like believing these like a new, a new way of life right and i think like yeah. in like sh- seeing Sam's weakness as like a, Oh, he's being a little more sensitive. Oh, his wife is pregnant. He's about to be a father. He's like Mm -hmm. freaking out a little bit about like his future. Um, I like seeing that it it adds to this universality of the characters and that we can see ourselves in, in the members of the parish and see ourselves as like, I can see why they would join something like this. And I can see Sam, like I considering the teachings of father and seeing how like, Oh, I can understand why someone would join this. I, I like seeing that in the characterization. He he does act like a guy from Vice, which is like very yeah. argumentative, uh, not level-headed, you know, just kind of gets in the way of <laughs> interviews, which isn't everyone at Vice, because I've seen some where it's really good. They go there under the radar, then they give their opinion after they've spoken to people, which is the, you know, much more professional way of doing it. And I, I mean, I, I could sympathize with his character. I just think it... what he did show a lot of uh, an air of unprofessionality, at least the character in the movie, um, especially when he was like talking to father and stuff. There was a little bit of like, dude, kind of like read the room, get it right. <laughs> and it, it seemed like the camera guy was, was on it. Jake could read the room, was really aware of what was going on. He's like, this isn't right, man. Maybe we should get out of here. We, we got what we need. Let's go now before things get worse. Right. We'll Sam come back was, like, for everybody. It. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. very aware, but at the same time, I, I found it kind of forced that there's no point in the movie where either of them turn to each other and say, hey, this is a cult, you know? They're like, this is definitely right? a cult. <laughs> well, I think I think right in the beginning, they say they're going to a cult. I think. Oh, like, do they say it sounds a little culty? Uh, yeah, I think they pretty much say we're going to go save your sister from a cult. Yeah. <laughs> they fair. might even say that line. Yeah, but they would in realistically you think so i mean i i think it's already known it's like why would you say something we already know right and i i think david what you're getting at in the way that you're explaining it you have like um uh like cult has this like fearful connotation to it of like oh it's a cult we should get the fuck out of here but i think like the point of the film is also to show you know cult 
yes, in this film, it means something bad, but not necessarily, you know, it's still like a belief system. It's still a way of life. So I think to say like, oh, it's a cult. We need to get out of here. It's kind of also saying like, oh, this, this way of life is terrible. We should get out of here, which they don't say until the very end. So, so Dave, what were you saying about the sister character? Did they specify why Caroline joined, by the way? Yeah. Um, she has an addiction issue, um, which they talk about a lot. In the very mm. beginning, Patrick says that she has an addiction issue. Um, and then they mention it later, too, actually, when she's like, hi. Yeah. And they're like, isn't she supposed to be down here getting sober? Isn't this supposed to be a sober way of living? Like, why the fuck is she mm. high right now? Yeah. There, there's a lot of, like, red flags going on all at once in this movie. And um, <laughs> at first watching it, I was like, wow, shit just hit the fan, like, real fast. But... Uh, in the reality of Jonestown, like shit hit the fan like way harder, kind of. Like it, it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot crazier. And and I wish this movie did it. Like there was a planted spy who got on the truck with the people who were leaving, and then he they frisked him, and they didn't find the gun, and then he started shooting people, and then more people came up and were shooting people. It was like wild, man. What did you guys think of the part where Caroline kills her brother and then lights herself on fire? Okay, I have so many thoughts because I'm so confused. The whole entire point, um, I mean, the, the, okay, first of all, the the cult, we'll say cult, the cult and the religion, like the cult and the movement is based in religion, right? And like, it goes so far to say that father says like, this isn't suicide, right? Because he like, mm -hmm. he wants to specify that, you know, normally suicide in the eyes of the Lord will lead you to hell, but this yeah. isn't suicide. Um, yeah. This is like a positive way out and you are going to go to heaven. And so he keeps preaching this as everyone's dying. Um, but then Caroline flat out murders her brother. Yeah. And uh, there are also guys with machine guns just shooting people. Um, Jim, Jim right. Jones so was calling it revolutionary suicide. And he was playing with this idea for like a long time. In fact, he had a vote like months prior where he had everyone raise their hand who would be willing to engage in revolutionary suicide, knowing like three people raised their hand. And he was like, oh, okay. And one of the survivors said that he could see a look of disappointment on Jim Jones' face. But it was also a look of like contemplation of like, how am I going to change this? And from then on, Jim Jones did whatever to plant the seeds of revolutionary suicide throughout his entire following. And what happened was when, when everyone did it, finally, he even had like code words calling people who weren't in Jonestown to kill everyone and kill themselves like uh his adopted sons and stuff were almost killed in a bathroom with a knife holy shit that's yeah. horrible evil bastard yeah but for the context of like this film father you know even though he's based on jim jones there's still a lot of like differences in their in their teachings and i'm i i guess i just want to go back to your original question of like what the fuck was caroline doing and why is that justified well, she was totally fanatical. Yeah, I mean, the father is basically preaching that this death is going to martyr them. It's something that they're all going to share together. Uh, so Caroline killing her brother is almost like she's inducting him, sort of, in her brain. Um, I do find it funny that this is the third episode almost in a row where someone lights himself on fire. Yeah. Oh my god, it is. I was saying that to, to my wife when we watched this. I'm like, every movie we watch, someone lights themselves on fire. Uh, yeah, he he uh, he quotes uh, either Romans or like the Book of John at one point. I forget the quote exactly. That laying your life down for your brother is like the best thing you can do. But what he's asking everyone is to lay their lives down for him. 
And I, yeah. I wish the movie, it was weird to use uh, the viewpoint of outsiders for it because we really don't get a, a clear examination of the personality of the father figure who's based directly yeah. off Jim Jones, who was an absolute egomaniac, sadistic, power hungry bastard. You know, he used to make his mm-hmm. uh, subjects box each other just for fun, but he would pit people like of unequal power against each other to just beat the shit out of another one. And he was sleeping with everyone. And he was doing drugs all the time. He even <laughs> faked. He even faked a shooting of himself at one point. Jesus Christ! Shit. Yeah, where he was shot in front of his whole congregation, but it was blanks, and he had like a squib, and they faked it to make everyone think it. And he used to fake healings and stuff. Uh, th- this father figure, I-, I don't think we get the true sense of how he twists the religion the way that Jim Jones did, because Jim Jones was using religion. And socialism as a vehicle for power. So let's put Jim Jones aside for a moment and just talk about the father himself. Like, forgetting the real world context, what do you think? Do you guys think you have a strong idea of the father's motives within the movie? Or what do you think they are? They seem pretty political to me. Um, Hmm. He does have that whole speech. And and like I was saying in the description, it does seem very anti-capitalist, anti-American government way of thinking more of like a yeah i mean he was trying to make kind of a utopia or something but right i mean i i I can't really explain it outside of the jim jones because i don't think the character is developed enough to really show us he basically gets one speech and then he just acts like uh, an egomaniac you know so you don't think he has enough motivation well um i mean i i think he's power or that or that his emotion is not explained within the movie um yeah you kind of have I to agree with you it. i yeah i don't think that it really gets into him too much um i like he talks a lot about the imperialism and socialism and mm-hmm. oh all the media is all full of lies and whatnot and it's hard to tell whether i believe that he believes that or not like i'm not sure mm. if he actually thinks that or if he's just saying it in order to grab power mm-hmm. Well, considering he's going against mo- a lot of the core teachings of the book he's supposedly a uh, master of, <laughs> right. I-, I would say that it's it's like a vehicle for his own means and uh, or his own ends. <laughs> and it, his own ends are pure power, absolute power. You know, like absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. My favorite tiny detail in the movie is uh, very much toward the end. He tries to quote the book of Job, but he calls it the book of Job. <laughs> oh wow oh that's horrid oh that's really interesting he just completely mispronounces it it's great i think that's because he was high though <laughs> remember he does like a line of cocaine um i think it's interesting that yeah i guess that you don't see this full characterization and it the the way that his character is rounded it rounded out is more so by the audience perception or fear of these cults um in the way of like the writing of his character preys upon those fears of religion organized political socialism like they just like sprinkle it throughout and the audience can kind of like pull whatever they want to like make him seem like a, a fearful leader yeah yeah it, it it's hard to get a grasp on him um he sleeps with caroline right Oh, yeah. 
I think he sleeps with a lot of them. I'm sure. Well, yeah, but we we basically see him with Caroline. She runs out of the house. She goes back to bed with him. They, like, pull Patrick aside for, like, a three-way at some point. Right. Another thing that goes against religion that Sam points out, he's like, um, isn't a three-way kind of against the Bible? And they're like, yeah, but this is a special occasion. We all must sin once in a while, so long as Father approves. That just goes back to what you were saying, Rob, of, like, he has absolute power to the point where he can twist the Bible's uh, wordings to just serve him and have other people be like, yeah, the book is the word, but also the word is father. Yeah. We also don't see Patrick's perspective in that moment. Like, it's entirely possible that he was just raped. Right. Uh, I mean, maybe. But uh, maybe. I, there's there's no indication that that happened. Um, we don't even know we if that's know what really... We, we don't, it's off screen, so we don't even know if she's lying, if they just have him tied yeah. up or what. We, we have no idea of anything. We don't know if he refused and yeah. they tied him up. Right. She also just says, like, my friends are with him, and it's Sam who goes, oh, well, that's a threesome. Like, it's 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 him saying that they're oh, having okay. sex, yeah. but she is, like, she agrees with it, but at first she's, she's not the one that brings up sex. She's just like, my friends are here with Patrick. Yeah. I would assume that the guy in his 20s probably just willingly did it, but uh, maybe not. I don't <laughs> know. We, we really don't have a clear indication. Yeah. What, what do you guys think of, like, portraying this kind of thing on screen for kind of like entertainment purposes of you know them murdering 200 people killing babies lighting themselves on fire um mostly that it's it's based on a true story in part yeah yeah and may- maybe this is even the real reason for the changes because it, it kind of does feel like not sure if this is in poor taste or not that they're just somewhat taking advantage of this very real tragedy yeah, it's it's it was incredibly hard to watch knowing that this is very close to what actually happened. But they're also telling the story of the real tragedy, which isn't that widely known for some reason. Mm. Well, it's ha- it happened a long time ago. I mean, going on what more than forty that long. more than forty years ago, way way longer than any of us have been alive. Um, but it, it doesn't really tell it truthfully what happened it's everything no. all the details are changed the religions change and uh, mm-hmm. we, we don't really get a sense of why anyone went there um they just kind of say it but we we don't go with any journey of that's why it's an outsider's view of this thing right but it's also way less tragic than the reality not just because it's fictitious because it's scaled down so much right so which i i, I mean watching the documentary is obviously a lot more upsetting than watching the film but it, it does to me kind of feel like it's sort of in bad taste because they didn't change enough i almost feel like they should have changed a whole lot more and just done a movie yeah. about a cult rather than being like this is jonestown but not really and then it's just kind of like an yeah. eli roth slasher movie and you're like <laughs> that's kind of shitty it, it feels like they're preying on the fear of and the horror of people for the sake of it. I, I agree. And I, I think I think you're right that if we were to see it from a more insider's perspective, I would have more of an idea of like, okay, the filmmakers are trying to um, reckon with what happened. They're trying to, you know, get to the bottom of it, explore like a little bit more themes. But now it just feels like, mm, no, here's Jim what Jones happened. Scary. And like, yeah, Jim Jones, scary. 
Yeah. Uh, murder, death, suicide. Look at all these terrible, horrible things. It's very Eli Roth. It's very Eli Roth. It's kind of exploitation, right? I, I feel oh, like yeah. it's almost more exploitation than uh, the last movie, uh, Nightmare City, we've talked about. Hmm. I agree. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Totally. Um, have you guys seen, I haven't seen this, but apparently uh, there is an actual recording of Jim Jones' final speech. I'm not sure if there's actual video or if it's just audio because oh, wow. I refused to watch it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I saw that uh, a few days ago on the uh, Terror in the Jungle. They talk um, about that, it, yeah. yeah. I think there there's so much footage of him. I'm trying to remember which yeah. one it was, but I think he just keeps yelling, we will fight, we will fight, we will fight. Um, he's he's very mm. vehement, um, you know, when he's speaking with like a lot of vitriol, but he's also slurring the whole time. Like he was always wearing dark glasses because he was so drugged up. Like he's, I, I was talking to my wife too. The reasoning for killing everyone doesn't make sense to me because in reality, there were 14 defectors out of a thousand. He could have just let them leave and just gone on with his own business probably for a long period of time. And my wife thinks it's just because he was one of these people who couldn't take any kind of loss, that it was either all or nothing. That's what it was. Um, when Hitler killed himself uh, in the wake of, before he would have been captured, uh, Jim Jones saw that on the news and thought, wow, that's badass. Wait, that's what he actually said? Well, he didn't say that literally, but he like he thought it was really fascinating and uh wise that hitler killed himself yeah i mean it's also very likely he would have been tortured had he been caught yeah so it's a little jim jones or hitler 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 (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean jim jones should have been if anyone um right hitler too (laughs) but in the sake or in but in the context of this film um again not jim jones but father father says you know he doesn't he thinks the media is going to ruin the reputation of their way of life that they're going to destroy everything and that the only way out is to just go in this positive light as yeah. we see yeah. now if you believe him well that too is stripped straight from the reality because jones said the same thing he said that the media is all full of lies and they're going to send guns here to kill us all kill your women blah 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 and father says the same thing again that's why i i think nothing really got changed it's like they just changed a few details here and they just yeah were like, oh, Jim Jones said this. Let's let's have father say that now. I didn't realize how much it was based on Jim Jones while watching. And during that whole scene, my understanding of the event had been the pop culture version that everyone just willingly killed themselves. So I was like, oh, well, this is like a less extreme version. And no, this this is actually what really happened. People did not willingly kill themselves. Well, no, that's it was murder. Most people did not willingly kill themselves. It was murder. There's no indication of whether of the number of people that willingly drank versus not willingly. There's not Mm -hmm. enough footage of it. Yeah, but we know that many were not willing. A whole lot of them were not willing. So it was a mass murder and it was also a mass suicide. But one of the questions is, even if you willingly drank it, was it because you felt like it was either drink it or you get shot? Yeah, I mean, the survivors have all said that it was murder. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they all say it's murder, but... You know, just because they say it doesn't yeah. mean there, there's also a lot of fanatics who did go along with it willingly. Um, and, and this movie does, I think, show the horror of Jonestown pretty well at the end. It is kind of exploitative, but, it, you know, if you watch that and you're like, oh, my God, yeah. this is terrible. And then you learn about the real thing and realize it was a lot worse. Maybe that's valuable. Just maybe that has some sort of value in it. I don't know. I I just feel like the whole thing isn't fucking 
poor taste. <laughs> um, <laughs> we talked about it a little bit in the beginning of this being found footage. Do you guys consider this a found footage movie? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Why wouldn't it be? it's definitely uh, nuanced and not really found footage. It's not like Cloverfield where the whole thing's like shaking and like hard to watch. Yeah. Or is it like, mock- I feel like it's like a horror mockumentary rather than like a found footage kind of thing. Mm. It really bothered me. Yeah. There are so many moments throughout where they just, mm, they didn't live up to the found footage slash mockumentary slash like documentary style that they were going for. I was like, oh, they just placed, Carol- Caroline takes a camera at one point, which yeah. we can talk about, but um, and she places it down and like, it's framed so fucking beautifully. And I'm like, this doesn't, <laughs> this is not, it's not based in reality. It was so hard to accept the reality of found footage when watching, while it's watching also this like, movie. They don't do enough to establish when Caroline takes the camera. So during the whole scene, I'm just like, wait, who's filming this? I asked that so many times throughout the movie. I'm like, wait, who's filming this? Also like, oh yeah, Patrick's like SLR camera is the same as the like epic camera that uh, Jake is using. Yeah, that makes total sense. Also the film grain. <laughs> I, I feel like the movie lost a lot by making it found footage. I feel like it would have been. Yeah, I, I feel like making it found footage was a mistake. I, I mean, I also just don't like found footage. That's so I'm biased. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, honestly, I, I don't like uh, more true found footage where the camera's shaky and it's like bad quality <laughs> and it's like bad angles. I prefer this style. It doesn't really bother me. Um, I, that that's not my problem with the movie. I I don't care. I'm like fine. I think if you're gonna do a found mm-hmm. footage, you should do it theatrical. That's just it's a mechanic to be able to talk to the camera. We've been talking a lot about about the media, and I do want to bring up why Caroline picked up the camera. Uh, if they were if they were going through with this final event, because one of the reasonings being, like I said, they didn't want the media to paint a poor light. Why is Caroline still filming everything? Why is she purposely picking up the camera and showing herself murdering her brother? Well, father told her to do it, to film it. But why? I mean, she literally doesn't see this as a bad thing. She literally thinks that this is okay and beautiful. We'll probably get into this a bit in the next movie as well, but I think that in her mindset, showing this to people, they're all going to see it as something beautiful as well. Yeah, I also kind of think it's sort of the last hurrah of Father. It's his way of like showing the world the power he had and the power he had over people. It's um, It reminds me of uh, Thulsa Doom in Conan the Barbarian, another character who's also based off Jim Jones. Mm-hmm. He talks about how the power of flesh is so much stronger than steel when Conan's on the ground all busted up. And, and he looks up at a, you know, a scantily clad follower of his on, on a cliff and he goes, Look at this, Conan. He goes, come to me. Come to me, child. And she walks off the cliff and falls and dies. And he goes, that's power. That's horrible. Oh, yeah. Conan's an awesome movie. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that Jim Jones and Father do. They, they want to display their power. It's like it doesn't matter if like people are injured over it. It's to feed their own ego. And I think showing the world through this footage is like that last grand display, that last spectacle. So that's why you don't like the Gene Jones casting or the characterization of Father in this film. You feel like you didn't see that power within the performance. Not exactly. I mean, it's it just, it it's an odd choice to make it an outsider because it's way less interesting because all these concepts are very interesting. 
I didn't really understand why they cast Gene Jones because Jim Jones was a much younger looking, better looking guy. Mm-hmm. And, and he kind of understood how he was able to sway all these people. This other dude's just like a fat old preacher guy. Like it's kind of playing on the trope of what you think like Southern, what are those cheap religion channel preachers mm-hmm. are oh, like? Oh man. That's kind of like the vibe I got. That's not the, what I got at all. I I like, I loved his performance. I thought he was so captivating and engaging. And I think the Southern draw was like, not necessarily a commentary on like Southern religions, um, Southern religions, not necessarily a commentary on like that Southern draw was like soothing. Like I was like, so soothed. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I liked it. I, I thought he gave a good performance. I just think that it it's more interesting to have like a young charismatic guy out there swaying everyone and really like showing this power rather than like this old man facade which would have been cool if they did more of that i'm a middle ground i i think that rob i i agree with rob's take that he reminds me of a televangelist yeah that's the word thank you uh but i think that works i just wish that his character was more fleshed out and that we understood him better and his motivations <laughs> yeah I, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that's a way of modernizing it by having him being a televangelist. But I also, I don't understand when everything else was based on the original, why you would change such a key aspect to a less interesting character. I think it's still perfectly interesting. Um, but I, I, I guess my issue with him not having motivation is also that he's given so much screen time and so much presence that you want to understand him. Mm-hmm. I think if he had less screen time, if he was more of a background figure, then I wouldn't mind so much not understanding him. Well, I think a lot of it is just we don't know enough about Eden because it's like an outsider perspective yeah. and things just happen so quickly in the movie. Like when things are uncovered, they they kill everyone 15 minutes later. Right. So there's not like the uncovering of like, oh, this atrocity is happening here. That atrocity is happening here. They're enslaving people in this way, etc., etc. This is the way fathers really like. It's kind of like father comes out, he gives you spiel, then we see he's evil, and then movie ends, pretty much. Right. It's playing on the audience's preconceived idea that cult equals bad, cult equals mass murder. Yeah, and I think a preconceived idea you're supposed to have is just an understanding of what happened at Jones Jonestown. Otherwise, the movie is... Well, actually, I think it's better if you don't know anything about Jonestown. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, pups, I'm excited to move on to our next movie, but first, I'd like to ask you once again to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CadaverDogsPod. And while you're at it, if you're enjoying the show, the best way to help us grow is by tweeting about us or otherwise sharing us with your friends. Lastly, if you have a podcast or a horror-related product you'd like to promote in this space right here, shoot us an email at cadaverdogspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, pups. Thanks for sticking with us, hounds. Welcome back. Dave B. Jacobs is going to tell us about our following film. It's been two years since anyone saw Eden. She and Will separated in the aftermath of their son's death, and she went away, cutting off all connection. But now she's back and seems interested in reconnecting. She and her new Esso, David, invite Will and his girlfriend, Kira, to a dinner party. Populated with all their old friends, as well as a couple of new ones who are admittedly a little weird. But Will isn't totally comfortable with this. He's taken aback by the apparent change in Eden's personality. She's no longer a distraught wreck, but seems calm and happy. The source, of course, is that 
Eden, David, and their new friends are part of a cult, the Invitation. As members, they're taught to embrace their desires so you can control your emotions. They've learned that death is a natural part of life, not something to be feared, but something beautiful. Will doesn't trust this, and suspects ominous intentions. And to be clear, no one is doubting that it's odd one party goer even chooses to leave, but for the most part, their old friends are simply happy to see Eden again, and accept that she's found a way through her tragedy. They should have listened to Will. Eden and David are to commit ritual suicide, poisoning the wine to bring their friends with them. When Will interrupts this process, they instead resort to guns and knives, and only a handful of survivors make it through to see the red lanterns lit all along the LA mountains. This is happening everywhere. 2015's The Invitation was directed by Karen Kusama, screenplay by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. Ah, the dinner party with your ex. <laughs> <laughs> fucking stressful already i it, this this was kind of was this the first film that we covered that was pretty much a like one location movie the thing the thing right duh ready or not yes okay that counts <laughs> that counts yeah it is a small location though. it is a small location yeah and i'm curious what your guys sinister oh okay well <laughs> fucking a just show me up david fine <laughs> Yeah, no, he leaves the house in Sinister. And yeah, he goes I guess to, he does. He goes to a second house at the end. At the end. Yeah, <laughs> spoiler yeah. alert. Andy's outside, yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm curious, because usually when we see, quote, one location, I mean, this was like a whole house, but um, it usually adds something, I think, to, to the films. Um, how did you see the setting, the location in L.A. affecting this storyline for The Invitation? Mm. Well, it felt very claustrophobic. You know, although mm -hmm. they were on like this hillside with a big expanse that they couldn't leave, the doors were locked. And, you know, the stress of being at your ex's dinner party, along with everything else, you just felt very stuck in the situation. I guess it was kind of a metaphor for being stuck with your grief, maybe. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's also important to recognize that this used to be his house. He, when he was with her and had their child, this is where he lived. And just being back in that location is definitely flooding him with all the memories of his, his son. Yeah. That was so sad to see when he, like, goes to his old son's room and, like, they do such a great job. They cut away to a flashback. So you're expecting to, like, see the childhood bedroom and, like, see the bed there. And then you realize that he's just totally in his head and is waking up in an office. Like, what it was supposedly is David's office. So, like, even the new beau has taken over his son's old room. So sad. Wow. The whole movie is really sad. The whole movie is really sad. Fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do they? Do they ever explain how his son gets killed? I think his kid hit him with a baseball bat. Is that what happened? Yeah, one of the kids at the birthday party hit him with a bat. I think. Yeah, I think we see the bat, but we don't see that that event actually happen. Which was also terrifying, though, because it's at another party. It's in front of actually all the friends who were there at the dinner party, um, and presumably their children as well oh i didn't catch that yeah everyone's like experiencing their grief together because they were all there when the event happened which was really interesting but will particularly blames himself because he feels that he should have been looking out more so of course that ties in with the current events when he is looking out and you know you can you can read that he might be looking a bit too closely specifically because he is so horrified by what happened when he wasn't looking that closely 
Yeah, if it weren't for like the slasher ending, I, I almost thought this was just a movie about a guy kind of unraveling, and this is just the roadmap of how someone might end up in a group like that. And it was pretty interesting. It was. And can we talk about his character for a second? Because I thought it was such an interesting choice for the filmmakers to um, make it so you almost believe that there isn't a cult or that it is just all in his head and he is like experiencing the this grief and this anxiety of mm-hmm. and this paranoia of being in the situation again and then you get totally fucked and like no he was right the whole time <laughs> <laughs> you know you think that's going to happen the whole time and then they did a really good job of bringing it back i never thought that there wasn't a cult but the first time i saw the movie i definitely was not sure what to expect and there's a character Choi, who doesn't show up on time and then uh, Will finds a voicemail from him saying, oh, I'm right outside. I'm actually early. Uh, so he starts freaking out, like, where is Choi? What did you guys do with Choi? And then Choi just shows up in the middle of this rant. And Choi's like, oh, hi, sorry, I got called to work. Very convenient, Choi. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I got to tell you, though, they were so creepy. Like, why would you lock doors? Why would you show a videotape of someone dying at a... At a dinner party. And then Pruitt, who's played by John Carroll Lynch, who's a fantastic actor. J-C-L. I'm, like, I'm such a big fan of his. Uh, he tells this horrible story of punching his wife to death. Oh, my God. And going to prison for it for seven years. And you're like, whoa. I mean, I, in my head, I was like, wow, dude, you should leave. Like, this is just so uncomfortable. Like, not even because it's going to end in bloodshed. But I'm like, you and your girlfriend really got to get out of there. It's, like, inappropriate to be there. It just felt so uncomfortable. <laughs> the girlfriend being um kira yeah like will and his girlfriend kira definitely should have left especially when sadie started hitting on him real hard it was just so weird well that was like moments before i think before his rant about Choi. so he, he 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 pretty much was about to leave after that fair do you guys think that um claire who was the one of the or the woman who left and then jcl like goes to her car and uh, to see her off. Do you think she actually got away? No. You see another car pull past right away. Right. And those were like, presumably the people who were at the door looking for a party. Remember, people were at the door and he's like, oh, it was nobody. They just left. I'm, I'm almost positive those were like some of the henchmen of the invitation going around to make sure things were going okay. Oh. And they were kind of revolving the entire neighborhood. So I assume Claire did not get away. I'm pretty sure she got forcibly uh, removed into another car, and one of the guys from that car drove her car away. I think Claire got away. Why? I, I think there's. I just think there's no reason to believe that she didn't. Um, like her car definitely took off, or we would we would know if her car did not take off. I mean, yes, they cut away before we see that for certain, but hmm. the other party members would be aware if her car was literally just sitting there. And John Carroll Lynch did not take enough time to move the car or anything like that. Well, well, he didn't do it, though. It was another car. I think there was other people there. Because another car went by right as he was there, and like it kind of stopped. It was very fishy, whatever was happening. I don't think there's any reason to believe that they would have gone after her. Like At that point in this stage, they want these murders to be beautiful. They don't want to have to resort to violence. So if she leaves, then... I think that John Carroll Lynch, that Pruitt was telling the truth when he said, I was trying to convince her to come back, mm. but he failed, so she just gets away. 
Well, I, I disagree. But what, what do you think, Devin? Um, I think she gets away. I think I, I saw the car and I took it as a, um, as an actual car, not necessarily as someone else in the invitation coming to get her and seeing that car drive by made me think like, Oh, there's bystanders. Then JCL wouldn't, you know, or Pruitt, I could stop calling him JCL. Uh, Pruitt wouldn't necessarily like take her or do anything um, to her. It also like, I mean, I think it also goes back there to like, what is the purpose of what the invitation and the, its members are trying to do tonight? And does Claire fit into that purpose? Cause I think I'm still like a little lost on the meaning of the evening for them. Also, I also just flat out believe that those people were looking for another party because at the end we see there are many, many parties, which ties into this question. What is their purpose? Mm. They're not just doing this in one place. This is happening all over LA. Mm -hmm. That's why I think they were like kind of henchmen from the invitation going around, making sure things were going to plan. And that any stragglers who were leaving before the event were getting round up for a bigger event that was going on all over the place. And mm. I, it's not exactly explained, but I would assume that their leader was trying to get a big mass of people to die for his following for some means in the afterlife that he devised, created, whatever. Right. And and from what little we actually do see of the teachings of um, of the invitation... I am curious what death means for like, is, is the purpose to see somebody die and therefore you have like a higher understanding or because I know eventually like the whole thing is about accepting death and accepting their death. But what does it mean when you kill someone else in their belief system? Yeah, It's hard to say. Uh, I, I remembered them talking about the afterlife a lot more than they actually do, but I still think it's very much implied that they believe in another world outside of this one, that they're going to meet the people that they've lost. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like they almost see the physical world as more of a cocoon in order to get to this better place, that our physical existence isn't real which is why death isn't real to them or maybe not even not real but just a, a different plane or something so to speak yeah 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 I, I think they do talk about meeting each other after they die for sure mm -hmm. and it being better yeah yeah it's this, this whole idea that like this world is a test and uh you know we just have to get past it in order to go on to something better which is just such a dangerous idea in a lot of religions that whatever's going on now is not what is important. There are other things that supersede your life. And without any kind of empirical proof, whatever, whatsoever, that's kind of a dangerous idea because it's just, it's faith-based and there's no way to argue one faith is superior to the other. Hence, that's why Bobby Henderson created the flying spaghetti monster, because <laughs> if there is no empirical reasoning behind a supernatural cause, then there's no reason to think that one supernatural cause is better or worse than another supernatural cause. Yeah, totally. It, it's interesting what you were saying about how it can physically, um, how that ideology can physically affect you in a negative way. But I think it, they, we also see some positivity in this way of thinking um, in, in the film of the invitation itself, because, you know, we do see grieving parents losing a child. I mean, that has to be like one of the hardest things you could possibly ever go through and the poor mother Eden um 
is is really suffering and we see some flashbacks of that as well um and something that she does say is like all those negative emotions are all chemical reactions it's entirely physical completely changeable and i think that hints to what you were saying rob of like some sort of belief there that um there is more of a metaphysical world and that there is a world beyond this like physical plane of suffering yeah i mean we do see that eden before she found the invitation was suicidal she there's a flashback where she's trying to kill herself and will is stopping her i don't know if i'd go so far as to say that it's like healthy or anything or not the movie depicts it as healthy i think the movie wrestles with the idea a bit but ultimately comes down firmly on the side of this is denial and they aren't actually helping themselves and even though Eden is at this party appearing to be happy and accepting, she is not. She is still just as tortured and traumatized beneath the surface as Will is. Yeah. It almost seems to say that uh, looking past your own physical life to try and solve problems is a net negative. Right. I don't know if it presents an actual solution to the problem, but I, I think it definitely says that this cult's ideas are not a solution to those problems. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely we can say that the movie thinks this cult is bad. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But something that I do find interesting, actually, let me, let me, um, before I get to, to my thoughts on that, ask you a question, I guess. Okay. Where do you think Will ends up after the ending of this film? It's a tough question. There is, in the final few seconds of the movie, you see him holding hands with Kira, which seems like it's suggesting that he and Kira are going to move forward together, that he does mm -hmm. have a path forward, even if he is not going to forget. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what's going to actually happen to him. I think that is what the movie wants you to think. Mm-hmm. But Kira is such a non-character throughout the movie that I, d I don't know if I fully buy that, I guess. She really is. Rob, but Rob, what's what's your answer to the question? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, we don't really know what the scale of the Red Lanterns is. I mean, is it just mm. in this place? Is mm. it global? Is it national? Is it statewide? Mm. Are the, Red Lan the Red Lanterns obviously have to do with the invitation cult. So I, I think that question would need answering to really know what happens with them. I mean, if it's total society breakdown, then, you know, him and Kira can go off Mad Max style together. <laughs> but what would more likely happen is this neighborhood had all these things happening. And now him and Kira are going to deal with the aftermath somehow. And um, they'll probably be weary of using any kind of spiritual means to deal with the problems he has. Right, because they're just not going away. I know. I, I, I really question if, like, the whole ordeal um, helps him recover or helps him get through the grief of losing a child. I, I really do question that because we do see him – we do see him grow a lot in the film, um, especially as he's, like, fighting to survive. Um, I think especially, like, because he gets to save somebody in Kira and um, – oh, gosh, I forget the other person Tommy. that survives. Tommy. Um, he gets to save them, and in a way, like – I would hope that that would help him come out of the grief of or the guilt of believing that he was part of the fault of his his son dying. Um, but you're right, Rob, like who's not to say that like they go off in search of like 
some other answers out there. I mean, we've talked a lot about Survivor's Guild on this pod before. See Final Destination episode. Um, and I, I I don't know. You could... I'd like to think there's a positive ending. Well, part of his growth also, I think, is that he he discusses... He doesn't say that he's suicidal himself, but he implies it. He says that he... He says that I've been waiting to die since the moment it happened. Oh God, that's heavy. I read as him confessing that he has been suicidal and has considered that. Mm. Now he's in a situation where the moment for him to die has arrived and he has to actively reject it. Right. He actively chooses to live. He rejects these suicidal notions. Whether or not that will hold or if it's just something temporary, the fact that it happened means that he can always at least return to this moment and say, but no, I survived. I chose to live, and I did save a couple of other people in the process, even if he didn't save as many people as he would have liked to. That's that's really interesting, especially when um, foiling that with Eden's character, because we obviously see Eden having those suicidal moments a little earlier on in the flashbacks, and then she goes to a quote-unquote suicide cult. So she lives this whole time with kind of the same mindset of like she will eventually she's like waiting to die, essentially, but she deals with it in a different way, of course, by the end, actually committing suicide, which is she the only one in this movie that does that? That commits suicide? Yeah. I think Sadie commits suicide. I'm not positive. Yeah, she kind of like dies in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought that well, she, she was already injured. So it's not clear. It looked to me like she had drinking the uh, cocktail, whatever it was, mm. and uh, was dying of that on the couch. That's what I, I got. She Her was, mouth wasn't foaming. I thought it was a little bit. She was like gurgling and rasping the same way. Uh, maybe not. We don't see it. Um, I read it as her bleeding out, but I could be wrong. Could be either. Or both. All the people at the table were trying to drink the Kool-Aid together. Yeah. Drink drink that no, it's the flavor aid, Rob. It's the flavor aid. <laughs> mm. It's actually well, wine. Yeah, this one was <laughs> wine. What was it laced Cherry? with? Was it cyanide? It was cyanide. It's yeah. the same symptoms as cyanide, so I assume it is. Yeah. Oh wow. I heard dying of cyanide's terrible. It like sucks all the oxygen out of your body. Holy crap. <laughs> is it as fast as it is in these movies though? It's pretty fast, but you still suffocate, so it might be like you can't move, but to actually die might take a few minutes. Sounds pretty bad, yeah. Oh. But I did enjoy how all three survivors pretty much got a kill. Wait, wait, wait. Who kills? Wait, who kills who? Who kills who? Will kills Sadie. Oh yeah. Tommy kills. Tommy kills David, and Kira kills Pruitt. Kira's killing Pruitt was the coolest part because JCL really went for it when he was getting smashed in the head. Uh, screaming. What an American treasure, JCL. <laughs> he really is. You ever see Walking Dead? He's like a monk or something. Oh, really? Oh, that sounds dope. Do you guys think that in her dying moments that Eden regretted anything? Uh, she definitely seemed like she was. She was not happy about it, and David was talking her into it, and she was immediately regretful of shooting Will. That. I think. I think possibly just that beat of like, actually killing somebody else but i think i see a piece of her in the end um mm. piece being p-e-a-c-e um i especially loved that she and will got 
some sort of closure. I, I love their relationship throughout. Like you can tell there's a lot of love there still and that their relationship just didn't work due to extreme tragedy. And I, I do really love that he carries her to the place where their son died, the backyard, and she gets to have that final moment with her son and and die still believing that she'll be able to see him and still be able to like be with him in the afterlife. I thought that was pretty nice. Grief is a fucked up thing. Grief is a fucked up thing. And it seems like in a way, a lot of these characters are dealing with different kinds of grief, not just like dealing with grief in different ways, but different kinds, I would say, um, beyond just like losing someone that they they love uh, physically. Can you elaborate on that, actually? Like, what are the different kinds of grief? Yeah, I found um, two characters that I, I found really interesting were, were Ben and Gina. Ben talks a lot about how his marriage is falling apart, how, you know, the love isn't just isn't there anymore. And I think in a way he's, quote, grieving a marriage or a great love or something that is like he's mm. starting to lose in his life. Um Gina's really interesting because she, you know, we see her as this party girl. She's like, I want to do Coke. She drinks the the poison wine first because she's like, hell yeah, fucking wine. And she's like ready to to live this party life. And I see her in a way grieving youth, grieving what she once was able to be and as an adult can no longer be. So those were just two examples that I saw that were really interesting. That's so interesting. I like that a lot, actually. Because, yeah, grief is... People usually just think of grief as mourning a loss but of a person, but it, it can be a lot more than that. Grief is grief is applicable to those situations you just described, losing marriage, losing youth. Like Those emotions that you feel are still classified as grief. Yeah, and I think it, it is the stem of a lot of, like, we talk about mental health a lot on this podcast, but, like, I mean mental health can stem a lot from grief and grief of different things. And I see that being very effective yeah. throughout. I mean, not just this film also in a way, the sacrament, I think kind of also deals with that a little bit. Maybe cults just in general, we can say, uh, exploit grief. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, these characters are most definitely being exploited to join this cult. I mean, we, we don't know anything about the leader of the cult in this movie. Like right. he is a person on a TV who is just talking directly to, the, the people who who are in who are in his cult like he he is directly to his followers he's talking directly to his followers that's it we get two videos of him we don't know anything about him we don't know anything about his backstory anything about his motivation anything about why now like none of that is known and I think the movie works way better for that yeah it is really interesting how both these movies uh, kind of have a leader as like sort of in the background like in the sacrament it is a main character yeah in this movie it is not at all but how it works is much better in this film than in the uh the sacrament where the problem is we don't get enough of the leader mm. it's there's kind of like that sweet spot of like you if you want to show them you either want to give us a lot or like nothing at all and this one we're better for asking the question and i think that's probably one of the problems with the sacrament is like anything that's not answered you could just read history and you get a, the right answer. The only mystery that should be should be of things that you've changed significantly or that's just left out to have a better paced film, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the invitation very much puts the focus on why these four specific individuals are 
susceptible to this cult and why they are going through with it rather than why their leader is such an evil person. Like, we don't care about why their leader is such an mm. evil person. Uh, it's about the nuance of these individuals and what drives them to suicide. Right. And doing it in a way, though, where the audience can almost sympathize or they do sympathize with these characters and empathize yeah. with these characters, um, which gives this whole idea of, of grief and the trouble of or fear of death, this universality. Um, which I find really interesting and kind of makes you question like, okay, well, if you were in their shoes, like, would you join the invitation? Like, if you can empathize with them, you have that connection. And it also kind of says that like, which the end, I think the end, the end very much says this too. When we see all the lanterns light up, we're like, there is a universality here of everyone is grieving in some sort of way and mm. can connect through this, this one tissue. They're all part of the invitation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess everyone dies, so we all die together. It's kind of like a universal connection. But they don't die together, and that's what that that's what, what turns Eden somewhat against them. What, what makes her regret it, mm. I think, is seeing that their beautiful ending is thrown amok, and they have to shoot and stab people. They're not all dying at the same time anymore. They're, she's able to see their fear that they don't want to die. Mm. Yeah, that's why when Sadie rushed him, she's like, you ruined everything and like attacked him. And then he yeah. pushed her and she smashed her head. That was such a cool part because then you're like, oh, shit, is Will just losing his mind? Right. It really made me feel like Lou, like Will was losing his mind. And I was like, oh, because like the whole time I was watching, I was wondering why this movie's a horror film. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it's not a horror film until the end. Then it's definitely a horror film. Yeah. Even if it was all the way up to the end and he accidentally killed Sadie and it was this terrible thing. That's pretty horrific. But it really became kind of like a slasher film towards the end. Now, I am wondering, do you guys think that the other characters who weren't part of the invitation, did it seem like Eden and her husband and Pruitt and Sadie were doing a decent job of trying to indoctrinate them into their cult? It, to me, it felt like there was a lot of resistance. And the whole time, it seemed like Will was their main target. And Will was the type of person we could see being attracted to this group. Yeah, I, it it is interesting. And again, I go back to the question of like what their end goal was because at the end, none of them adopt the the cult beliefs and they get poisoned anyway. But if one of them did, would they still get poisoned? Because it also seemed like David and Pruitt and Sadie and Eden were going to die anyway as well. So did it matter if they joined the cult or not? And if so, like why would they try to push this idea ideation on them i don't know that they're necessarily trying to get them to join the cult i think that they're more just wanting to share their beautiful ideas before they all die um almost almost to give them a sense of understanding as to why they're dying even though it's so fast that they wouldn't really be able to process it if the plan had worked yeah but they would be able to in the afterlife yeah it's like what we were saying in the previous movie when Caroline starts filming everything and we were asking why is she filming it? Um, and, and my argument was that she doesn't see it as a bad thing. We, we see that much more literally done right here when they show the video of the woman dying. Mm -hmm. And like Eden and David literally 
don't even seem to consider that people will be disturbed by this. They they had to know that it would disturb them a little bit, but I, I think it was kind of like, all right, off to the deep end now since it's your last night. What's so scary about it is that you really sympathize with these people because they don't see themselves as evil or bad or doing wrong. They really feel like they're holier than thou. Yes, I agree. That is the scariest part of it, too. Um, yeah. yeah. It's like the danger of fanaticism, right? Oh. Because the the lead fanaticism, like they're all fanatics. That's why they're able to justify these awful acts. You know, the ends justify the means, etc. Like, like a Jim Jones type always saying that. But, you know, you kind of have to know that since he was manipulating everyone, he had an understanding of what he was doing is wrong because it was all like self-serving. Right. But the fanatics beneath him are are the ones who are like truly brainwashed. Right. And which is why I agree with what you were saying earlier, like why the invitation is so good at not diving in more into the leader because we don't see the faults in the leader for that fact. Yeah. We don't see the cracks yeah, in the belief system because, yeah, these people are, are blindly leading. I, I I totally agree with that. Yeah, unless the leader was himself a fanatic too. Mm. Which, I mean, it could be. It it The movie definitely, I think for a minute, actually makes you question whether death is bad. It actually, it's almost, there's a moment in an Akira Kurosawa film, uh, Dreams, which is it's an anthology of movies about his dreams. And one of the final segments, it goes to a village, and it's just like a very innocent village, almost a utopia. And at one point he sees a bunch of people in the background or like seem to be celebrating. And he asks the, the local man, like, what what's going on? And he says, oh, it's a funeral. Over here, when someone dies, we celebrate their life instead of mourning their death. Yeah, I, I forget which episode we talked about that on. But um, yeah, these, these movies are uh, very heavily seen through like an American viewpoint of death, I, I feel like. Of, yeah. We're so terrified of death and we don't celebrate it like some other cultures do. But it is interesting to take kind of like the villainizing approach to that when when talking about cults as well, because, yeah, all we know about this cult is that it accepts death. And so why does that need to be seen as a bad thing when in other cultures it is seen as part of a way of life? Death is a part of a way of life. I think that the place where the line is crossed is murder. (laughs) (laughs) And suicide. And suicide. The the glorification of death, I think, is Mm. where the line gets crossed where you don't want to accept death to the point where people are actually going to kill themselves, which is why most mm. religions just kind of cop out of it with a, a quick little, Oh, if you commit suicide, you're going to go to hell clause. <laughs> that's, the, that's the clause of the Bible. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Which is actually really fucked up when you think of it, because like people who commit suicide are sick and suffering from mental illness. And, to just dismiss them and say, oh, they're going to go to hell because they have an illness is kind of terrible. So much worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, if you're unbaptized, you go to limbo. So I'm Jewish, man. <laughs> I'm going to hell. <laughs> yeah. But like unbaptized. Yeah, that's hell. But unbaptized, like aborted baby limbo. Oh, fucking A. That's a whole thing. I do have to talk about one thing because we're on the topic of cults. And I can't go watching this movie that takes place <laughs> in the L.A. Canyon without mentioning Sharon Tate and Charlie Manson. Oh, oh yeah. 
Eden and Sadie gave me such Charlie Manson, Sharon Tate vibes. And there's just something about them being in the canyon. I didn't get that all, but I see where you're coming from. Right? I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's just like very lightly in there. Um, And it could just be because it takes place in LA. But I just wanted to to just like throw it out there and mention it because we're talking about famous cults. So maybe it's, maybe it's a little Manson-y. I don't know. I mean, they are basically a hippie cult that is sent out to commit murders. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very Manson-y. And also, I I think it kind of speaks to like this idea of like, hyper progressive open-mindedness in la mm-hmm. like they're so willing to like oh yeah it's okay that you watch someone die you just showed it to us at a dinner party like you know we'll accept you for that and etc and just this idea that you know maybe certain things should be judged a little harshly when they're really bizarre i mean the idea that you can control your emotions is also right out of scientology oh shit yeah and scientology's big in la yeah Actually, when I was there, I saw like an L. Ron Hubbard store. <laughs> it was huge. It was closed. I would have totally gone inside if oh, it God. wasn't. Well, thank God you didn't. Um, <laughs> well, it was like a bookstore. He was a sci-fi writer. So there's like all his other books there too, like Battlefield Earth and other wonders. <laughs> L.A. is a is a hub for a lot of cults. And I, I, I used to know the statistic and I can't remember it now, but there are, there are many, many cults in L.A. And it was interesting. I was reading um, an interview with, um, I think it was the writers of The Invitation. And they loved setting it in L.A. because a lot of people moved to L.A. to, to become somebody else, to like restart their life, to um, become a new person. And I think in a way that that coincides with cults a little bit. And so they thought, you know, it was really cool to show show that parallel or even the susceptibility of a lot of people that moved to LA to become somebody new that they're also willing to, you know, become someone new again in a cult-like setting. Yeah, I've heard from so many people that they don't like LA because everyone's fake or et cetera. Now, I've only been there for four days, so like I can't speak to like the full culture, but the idea is that it's it's kind of a superficial culture and it's where a lot of people have a restart, you know, like this Hollywood, like I'm going to become X, but really I'm doing Y just in the meantime. Yeah, and and and, and not to just, you know, uh, make note of LA, like New York where we all live too, that's also a place that people restart. And yes, there are a lot of cults here. I, dude, I was talking to someone who joined like a cleaning cult or like, oh no, it was, it was a coffee shop cult. There was this cult what? on the upper... West Side, it was a coffee shop, but everyone who worked in the coffee shop followed the leader of the owner, and then eventually it grew into, like, this giant cult. I totally digress, but, I mean, like, same kind of idea, right, is that there's, like, New York restart, L.A. restart, and there's a reason why we see that. I do know someone who was in a cult. What? Uh, I don't want to give any details. I thought I told you this. I know I've told Rob this, uh, but I don't want to give any details. I don't want to say who they are or what the cult was. But yeah, I know someone who was in a cult um, for several years, and they won't talk about it. I don't know anything about their time in the cult. I know about the cult. I've read about it. Uh, it wasn't great, and it eventually got busted. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, after the person that I knew left. Wow. But they were cut off from their family, which is a big thing about cults, that they often will cut you off from your friends and family. So no one spoke to them while they were there. And after they got out, they didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, uh, I can't remember the name of it. But one of my friends went to like 
what's it called like an initiation meeting for pretty popular i guess i would call it kind of like a culty type of like psychoanalysis group um that's been around since the 70s i wish i could remember the name of it it's like called structure or foundation or something it's got a very kind of like utilitarian name but yeah it's you know they try to target people who are like dissatisfied with their lives and just want some sort of sense of community and change and purpose right and again it's going back to like just talking with you guys about this the fact that we all know somebody that was in a cult or that um Mm -hmm. you know knows about someone that was in a cult non-rumor aside Mm. shows that a there are a lot out there but yeah b there there is a universality of everyone is suffering in some way and looking for some sort of answers and cults do provide that to an extent, um, which is wh- why I like how the invitation does it. The sacrament, I think, is a little different for all the reasons that we said earlier of like outsider's perspective. But yeah, it, it, it is it is so fascinating. It is also worth noting the person that I know is an extremely smart and intelligent person. Like cults are not only appealing to uh, people who are gullible or susceptible or something. Like, if you wind up stuck in a cult, that's not a sign of yourself. It's you were preyed upon. Yeah, and what we find so fascinating, especially in, like, a lot of modern cults that we've been finding out, I mean, take Nexium, for example, they kind of use that now in terms of, like, they base everything around, a lot of cults base things around, like, business now, or, like, bettering your business self. Here's how you advance your career, right? Here's the pyramid on how you get to the top in your career versus, like, your actual better self in your life. So I have a question. How would you guys define a cult, and how would you differentiate it from a religion? A good example would be, like, Scientology, for instance, which yeah. is a recognized religion, Although a lot of the things they do are considered cult-like. And they do also cater to both things, to people who are very intelligent and want to better their career, particularly actors. You know, they say like John Travolta's career really got kickstarted off after he entered into Scientology. He like immediately started getting commercials and then had his breakout roles. Was Saturday Night Fever like one of his biggest breakouts? Yeah, I think he, he joined yeah. it right before that, I think, right? I think so. It's really just size. I think that's the main difference. Like a lot of recognized religions start out as more or less cults and just build up such a following that they become recognized. So I don't know if there's really a clear distinction in like the behavior Mm. because there are enough offshoots of recognized religions that do very cult like practices. Um, I'm thinking of kind of those, uh, Mormon compounds that engage in like polygamy or something, whereas like the broader range of Mormons don't really do that anymore. Yeah. But you'll get these like isolated sects that do those kind of things and, you know, they'll like kick out the sons and sleep with all the daughters and stuff. That show Big Love talked about that a lot. His father actually like kicked him and his brother out when they were like 16 just so that he didn't have competition for the girls. See, I think that's what it is for me. I think size is a really interesting thing to point out because I, I do question like how do we um, mm-hmm. go from a, a, the start of a new religion to a, a widespread religion and you have to get to that that small size stage. So how do you like differ it from a cult to yeah. religion? I think that's a really interesting thing that you brought up. But I think for me, the major difference between cult and religion is that like it's separating yourself from your family and friends. I think that's when it becomes yeah. a little more culty when they're like, you can't talk to these people because they're going to change your ideology. They're going to change 
they're going to challenge you on your belief system, like all these things. I feel like that's when it reaches cult for me. Uh, see, I have to disagree, though, because I think that a lot of mainstream religions do things like that in certain sects of them that are not cults, because like the Mormon thing I was talking about, those are sects of Mormonism, but it's still Mormonism. Like it's part of it. It's not necessarily like a cult. Um, now, maybe you could make an argument for like Jonestown like that, where like, yeah, it was like a branch off of Christianity, but then they didn't really do a lot of Christian stuff. And Yeah. So I looked around for a good definition because um, I, I, I think the first one that we found to me read too much like it was just someone in a religion trying to say but this is why we're not a cult and i didn't really like that definition like it had a specific thing like separate from the church and i'm like that's dumb to have in your definition uh the one that i liked is the one i found in the guardian and they put in three things the first is a charismatic leader who increasingly becomes an object of worship as a general principles that may have sustained originally sustained the group lose power so it's the idea that there is a specific central figure it's not necessarily the ideas we're worshiping. It's this person. And if they suddenly change all of their ideas, we're going to go along with that. That's like a false idol. They, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it's, again, sounds like a recognized religion. We have Muhammad or Jesus. But or those are Moses. Dead or... people or prophets. Like, again, that's where you might say that they start out as cults. Maybe. It's hard to say without having been around them. But mm-hmm. these have continued without them. There is not currently that central leader who is a living person with their own goals and motives. Right. The second okay. thing is the a process of coercive persuasion or thought reform. Basically brainwashing. This is also where I would group in the separating you from your friends and family because that is part of that process. That it mm-hmm. is uh, making it so you cannot ask questions. You can't challenge them. You can't have your own ideas it's a loss of individuality and the third one is the guardian describes it as economic sexual and or other exploitation of group members by the leader so basically it's again just that ulterior motive it is uh you need to pay in order to get into scientology yeah so it's that it is that idea of that motive it is there in it, like in Scientology, you need to pay in order to get in. Uh, there, it, it is uh, some cults will have an added sexual component that oh, we all have to have sex with each other, so the leader is the leader's getting something out of it essentially, mm. which might just be power in some cases. Like with Jim Jones, I think it was just a straight up power grab. Totally. Actually, now that you listed those three, um, I'm, I'm I'm curious if you guys can point out the three moments or at least three moments in each mm-hmm. film that uh, confirm that they're joining a cult based on those. Hmm. So the sacrament is pretty easy. We got father as mm-hmm. the main guy, yep. right? We have the sisters isolated and they're having mm-hmm. trouble reaching her. They're not even allowed to leave. Right. Yeah. And then at the end, uh, he's doing coke and banging her and won't let people leave and beating the kids. Yeah. And they took all their life saving. Oh, and all the passports are in the safe. <laughs> right. Um, with the invitation, uh, we do have the leader and we have the brainwashing. I'm not sure about the economic control. We don't we don't really get a sense of how much money they gave. That's true. Yeah. We do get a sense that there's some sort of sexual component to it. Maybe. 
but we're not sure that is going to the leader because we don't know that much about it. Um, I do find it interesting that one of their criteria is that the leader must still be living for it to be considered a cult. So in that case, like Scientology, clear, L. Ron Hubbard's dead, not a cult. Same with like, is there a current leader of Scientology now? Uh, there, I don't know. I don't no. know that much about it. I, there probably is one. I, I know there's a tier system. Yeah, there's definitely a tier system. But it's not the original. It's not the, but there's also a leader of the Catholic Church. His name's the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I think that the Catholic Church checks out, for the most part, on the other two. There are definitely no some elements of the other two. Like, yes, you have to give the Catholic Church money, although I wouldn't say that the Pope directly benefits from that. And uh, no, yeah, he does. He <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. They have so much money in the Va- the Vatican's disgustingly rich. And the thought reform, I think, is debatable. I mean, there there are definitely elements of it, like with conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with all the sexual abuses with priests and whatnot, it's mm. that's kind of there too. And then the fact that the Vatican had been actively getting lawyers to defend these guys and all kinds of other things. Well, would you... Their criteria, I think you can apply to. Well, and that's what makes it so scary now because I don't think you're necessarily saying like, hey, Catholicism is a cult. I think it's more of like how... Like now it's even harder to define what religion is versus a cult. Like really, how... It is. How do you tell the difference? How? And and I think scale is one of the main things. It's also like if you're recognized as a religion, I don't think you can say that. Well, then, but you've said now if they're if they're a smaller offshoot of it, then maybe that's what I said. I said it's size and recognition. I think that's the only difference. Right. But you said Scientology was a cult, but Scientology is very large. Yeah, it's recognized now. Yeah. Yeah. But it started as a cult. But now it's a religion is. is, hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that given that criteria from the Guardian. You know, L. Ron Hubbard's death helps them. It is blurry. It's definitely blurry. I'm not sure there's not a central figure at the head of Scientology. Or if there's not... Like, if there, if it winds up being that there are, like, several central figures, would that dismiss it from being a cult? Or can it still count if there are just a few central figures at the top? Which the hierarchy system would definitely imply. Well, if we look at Nexium, obviously there is one top person, Keith Raniere... But then Allison Mack is kind of like right up there with him. And a lot of people see him as see her as a fellow leader in a way. Mm. So and if Keith were to. I don't know much about Nexium. Oh, man, you need to watch the documentary on HBO. It's so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything either. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I feel like that's just a common thread among different cults. But I mean, I could definitely. One of the ideas of cults is this idea of equality, and it seems like a whole lot of them try to do that or claim to do that. It just seems like like the old Soviet Union. It kind of devolves into a cult of personality and a dictatorship. Yeah, there is something interesting about cults. They have like a new idea system. And I mean, uh, you see these movements in cults where they start with a basic like universal acceptance of like needing a new system of government needing a new system of ideas needing a new way to um deal with certain things in your life right i mean jim jones and 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 the people's temple as as the ultimate uh comparison there but we keep pushing against those eventually and just signing them off as okay but that's a cult no more with that Hmm. is the soviet union a cult no did i say soviet union well 
No, Rob. No. Rob, you said that. Okay, did I totally miss that? <laughs> no, I, I said that uh, th- there were some similarities in that uh, this idea of like pure equality and then a central dictatorship. It has this the singular leader. It has That's the why thought think, reform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has the benefiting from its constituents. Yeah. That's why I think that's a bad criteria for a cult because <laughs> it misses the entire like religious aspect that you have to go through. It misses the scale of something. Is Reagan economics or Reaganomics a cult? Yes. <laughs> I, I I think you'd be a lot uh you'd probably have a better argument for saying the the Trumpyism is more of a cult because yes. oh God. It's a lot more central figured. It's uh QAnon is almost a cult. QAnon might be a cult. My friend at work uh, just listened to to a forty minute, forty five minute interview with the QAnon shaman. Shaman. I worship Pizza Rat and Zulu. Pizza Rat is pretty fucking cool. I'm all about that Spider Man. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're in the Spider Man cult. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, another definition of cult, ironically, is like fandom. So. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Do you consider our listenerships and this podcast a cult? No, don't don't say that. Just uh uh subscribe to our stuff wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> and like us on social media and uh then mow us fifty dollars and that's that's it. See we're not like benefiting that heavily. Yeah, yeah. And praise Cronenberg. There's three of us. We don't have a singular leadership. We're not, like, reforming your thoughts to hate Reagan or anything like that. No, no, no. <laughs> you should definitely Venmo us all $50 each and give sex to David. Give sex to David! <laughs> De- Devin and I are taken, but sex for David. I mean, I don't uh, know. At a, a certain point, you know, there could be that point in a relationship. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. Hey, threesomes aren't no sin, according to uh, Father. That's true. Father did. Well, it's it's when father says it's okay. Ah. It's a case by case basis. Yeah. yeah. As long as father doesn't have to watch. I uh, love that Decky's right behind I think Rob. <laughs> this she can't hear what we're talking about. <laughs> so right before we get to my final point of the show, I did want to mention one more thing just because it's kind of fun. And I'm sure a lot of uh, our listeners have already heard about this. But in speaking of death, uh, one of the ancient Greek philosophers, Epicurus, said that there's no reason to fear death because it happens after we exist. And before we were alive, we didn't exist either. So death has nothing to do with us. That's really interesting. That's weird. Yeah. And I think Thomas Nagel wrote an essay called It's Better to Be... Better to have been a bat. Better off... Uh, what, what if we were like a bat? Something like that. It's about death. And I think it's a similar... <laughs> It's a similar concern over FOMO of life, like your fear of missing out on your life, but you're dead, so there's no one to miss out on anything. Sounds like Nagel just wants to be a vampire. I was going to say, and now uh, is Rob, visit his website at epicuriousreligion.com and donate $50 to join his newsletter and his, uh, <laughs> you're, Rob, you're going to start a cult with this. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, in my cult, we all drink chocolate milkshakes all day <laughs> and uh, everyone buys me IPA beers and we all play video games in our underwear. It's awesome. <laughs> I feel like Greatest the Epicurus cult. quote actually kind of connects with uh, Albert Camus, who in the myth of Sisyphus, he wrote that the only great philosophical question, the only real philosophical question 
is whether or not we should kill ourselves. And I feel like the characters in this movie, they all have very different answers and approaches to that, but none of them actually get at Camus' own response to that, which he says we shouldn't. Hmm. Um, and it's a whole long thing that, uh, how can I summarize this quickly? Ba- basically, he says that it essentially amounts to it's not about the end, it's about the journey, and we get to create our own meaning. That's because Sisyphus used to push a boulder up a mountain and it would fall down and crush him and he would have to do it again every day. Yes, every day. That was his punishment by the uh, by Zeus. And Camus says we have to imagine that Sisyphus is happy while doing this. Oh, interesting. It's also worth noting that Camus was an absurdist and lived a very fast lifestyle and died horribly in a car crash. Oh, shit, I didn't know that part. Probably because he lived such a fast <laughs> lifestyle. Yeah, I'm an absurdist. <laughs> <laughs> you could be. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Epicurus's uh, response to the cult in either the uh, the sacrament or uh, the invitation would be, you guys are stupid. You're not going to all get together after you die. You just will no longer exist. So, yes, you will get rid of your pain, but you're not going on to any other plane of existence. You are ending your existence. And you can't be happy if you end your existence. You can't be sad either. You're just non-existent. Uh that super positive point left behind. Let's get on to our review section. I think that is positive. Let's get on to our review section. where It's a bone review section where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week with The Sacrament is Devin Shepard. All right. So Sacrament first. I'm going to give this one two bones. I used to really like this movie. Um, but it was also during a time that I was actually interning for the producers. So maybe I was, um, I don't know, indoctrined into their ideology. Um, and I do, I do really love Ty West. Mumblegore is like my kind of shit, but this movie, <laughs> it just fell flat for me. It really, really bothered me. I mean, I have problems with found footage as it is, but this movie like did not sit well with me on its found footage style. It, it went in and out in, in the basis of reality. Um, I liked the performances. I love Joe Swanberg. I love AJ Bowen. Caitlin Shields in this movie. Shout out. Uh, she's from your next, obviously with everyone else in the cast as well. But that's also me fangirling again, back to the cult issue. Anyway, it's two bones for me. It, 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 it's just, it's, it's not there uh, for all the character reasons that you guys said. Did you get to meet Ty West? I went to the same party as he did, but I did not get to meet him in actuality. That's neat though. He was there. I didn't know you had a connection to this movie. That's cool. I'm a little harsher than you. I mean, I hate found footage. Yeah. <laughs> and this movie's a pretty good example of why I hate found footage. Uh, I really like Ty West's first two movies, especially The House of the Devil is amazing. Um, and The Innkeepers is good, but this is not. Uh, it has kind of shitty characters who are really boring Amy Simons is the only one who I think is actually interesting. <laughs> She's great. And I love her movie, She Dies Tomorrow. I know it's a very controversial movie. I love it. Back to the sacrament. Yeah, I mean, when I found out the real... I, did, I didn't know any, that much about Jim Jones while I watched it, so I didn't realize how accurate it was to that story. And learning how accurate it was, I think, actually might have helped it a little bit because it adds that air of realism which is kind of the only thing the movie has going for it. It's kind of dull. It's kind of hard to sit through. 
Um, the music is terrible and really annoying and blasts in all the wrong places. It's just it's just not a very good movie. Sorry. Um, one and a half bones. I, I respect it. Wow. Okay, you guys are harsh. Uh, I, I'm probably more in line with Devin here. Um, I'm going to say it was just okay. I do, for once, I actually think it was almost offensive in how exploitative it was, how it just became this kind of like extremely schlocky, bloody, gory movie about a real incident that a lot of people who are still alive were connected to and babies were killed. Yeah, I find that kind of kind of crappy. Um, I enjoy schlock a lot. As you guys are probably well aware, I love Italian horror. I like Eli Roth. This was a very Eli Roth type of film. And on my first viewing, I was like, oh shit, they went there. She's lighting herself on fire. They're killing babies. I was like, all right, I'm on board for that. But even even on the first sit-through, I didn't think it was great. And I have to disagree with you, David. I feel like learning the true story made me respect this movie <laughs> a lot less. I didn't have any problem, really, with the characters. They were pretty typical found footage characters, maybe even a little stronger for the genre. And the found footage angles were so cinematic, it didn't even really feel like a found footage movie. It was just a found footage movie and label, which I appreciate because I don't like found footage. Uh, yeah, it gets two bones for me. It's okay. Uh, I didn't hate it. I actually kind of enjoyed watching it the first time through. I thought there were a lot of problems with it. And then after the fact, I was kind of more of annoyed with it than during the actual uh, first viewing. So two bones. Damn. So I, I am really interested on the next movie, though, uh, The Invitation. I, I have a feeling it's going to be a very different reaction. So why don't we why don't we switch gears Go with Dave B. Jacobs. I'll go with it. And we'll give Devin the last word. Oh shit! Didn't expect that. Okay. Um, I I I, I love this movie. <laughs> um, it's definitely got some trigger warnings in there. I mean, you see people commit suicide on screen, so gotta give it the trigger warnings. It's just it's so expertly paced. It has so many characters, but I care about. All of them, except for maybe Kira, who I think is kind of underplayed, and I, I wish she had more of a role or wasn't in it, one of the two. Um, but that's such a nitpick in what is otherwise pretty much a perfect fucking script. And I loved directing. Uh, Karen Kusama is, like, one of my favorite modern directors. I, I think she's fantastic and underrated. Um, you guys should definitely watch Jennifer's Body and Destroyer if you haven't. Uh, my roommate actually worked with Karen Kusama <gasps> on a TV show. <gasps> and he described that she is very good at working with actors. She doesn't cut to camera. She just keeps rolling. And the days that she directed were their shortest days on set. Oh, fuck yeah. Because she knows what she's fucking doing and comes prepared. <laughs> I am very excited for a Dracula movie. I love her. Uh... The, the two writers on this movie write most of her movies. Uh, they work a lot together a They're lot. They're married. And it's, it's... Oh, really? Yeah! Wait, the writers are married to each no. other? No. The writer is married to Karen Kusama. Sorry, I totally interrupted you. It... Both of them are married to Karen Kusama? Yes. No, I think Phil. I think <laughs> Phil is married to her. Cool. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, wow. I love this movie. It's, it's just so impactful and meaningful and sad and and nuance and it keeps you thinking and you you never forget about it i'm giving this thing four bones i i did not expect you to call it a masterpiece at all it's a masterpiece <laughs> yeah 
So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to disappoint you. Uh, I thought it was good. Uh, it didn't do a ton for me. I thought it was very fun. It was very interesting. Um, There's a lot of grief. I, I didn't think it was the greatest acting. I thought it was good. I thought it was very passable, but I really didn't think it was the best. And I think the script really wanted great acting from it. Um, that could just be me. Uh, although JCL was in it and he's awesome. And I, I did like all the characters. Uh, it took a long time to get to the ending and the ending was really crazy. And it was very jarring too. But I do think it worked. A lot of interesting themes. I'm going to give it two and a half bones. I thought it was good. Oh, damn. That's fair. I mean, it it sounds like the things that you didn't like are also specifically things that I do like. So it's just, yeah, agree or disagree. That makes sense. I, I, I love a good slow burn. Probably. Yeah, it's actually, it's so weird because I watched another movie called Coherence like two days later because my wife said that it's it's the same mm. setup, which it's verbatim, the oh, same cool. setup. Everyone goes to a dinner party and weird things happen. And I got to tell you, I thought that movie oh. was a lot better. I haven't mm. seen it. it. It was very different. It was very, it wasn't even, it probably wasn't even the same genre. It was the same setup. A bunch of people at a dinner party and weird things happen. I don't know if that's fair, but you know, just seeing them, I liked one better than the other. Cool. So two and a half bones. Well, I'm giving this fucking movie four bones. I love this movie. I've seen it a few times and upon rewatches, it just gets better and deeper. And I I just, there are so many little things that I notice every time and I love it more and more. And for me, that's what makes the script so much stronger. I I totally agree, Rob, that like um, I could see some performances being stronger and I think as I watch it more, I start to love the performances for different reasons. I mean, Will's performance is very, very subdued, um, but for certain reasons that are there in the script, and I appreciate what he's doing. Um, but there are just so many other good things about this that I have to give it four bones. Um, the directing is so tight. The script is so tight. The tension, it's just, it really, all of it comes from the masterful of tension. Every single moment of this movie, I am just like there and I am in it and I am waiting for the next shoe to drop. I I just love, I love this one so, so much. I love Karen Kusama. Um, yeah, four, four bones for me. We, we've never had a movie where more than one of us gave it four bones. So no, 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 no. Uh, ready or not. Yeah, but that was a mistake. You didn't mean Shh, to do that. The audience doesn't know that. <laughs> Did you give Antichrist four bones? She gave three no, and a half. Yeah, I, yeah. Three and a half, yeah. Okay. I, I know that we were close on some. I gave zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, if you or someone you know is struggling, we will have links in the description for help. I love you so much. Thank you.